Good morning. Trust everyone is doing well. And we are going to discuss today the Torah readings of Rosh Hashanah. The title for today's class for Rosh Hashanah is Will We Deserve to Serve? Uh, interestingly, etymologically, the word serve and deserve are related. And apparently because of the correlation between service and earning reward, when a person works or does service, then perhaps they can deserve reward. So that's an interesting question. We're gonna approach it a little differently, but that's the point of today's title, Will We Deserve to Serve? Chodesh Elul is sponsored by Nat and Eti Perez and family for the success of their children and Le'iloi Nishmas, David ben Masoda, Zifon Levracha, beloved father and grandfather. His dedication and great midos are dearly missed on his third yard site. This week's class, aside from our regular dedication for this week, we have a dedication with love by our yeshiva community in celebration of the birthday of Joe Friedman. May he and his wife, Beth, have tremendous simcha and bracha for many, many more decades. Joe and Beth are longtime yeshiva community members in different ways and uh, pretty newly married and celebrating this birthday together, we wanted to especially acknowledge the uh, celebration and happiness that we all have, wishing them uh, a great happy new year as we do wish everyone who attends this year and all of our sponsors and supporters. I would like to also just mention that of course, we always wish a refuah lema for all Chola Yisrael, Specifically now, <clears throat> David ben Aliza, Eitan Shmuel ben Chana Sima, David ben Leah, Dovert Tzvi Hirsch ben Dina, Yosef Shimon ben Serena, Ayelet bas Talia Chaya, and Chana Miriam bas Rechel Reza. So for today, when we think about the Torah readings for Rosh Hashanah, it brings to mind many things. Most recently, of course, we have been experiencing difficulties across the world. Um, just yesterday in our community, we have the very sad passing of a very special, wonderful person, Ellie Weberman, and many of us are very saddened and shocked and mourning that. And then other places in the world, we have many other tragedies that have been ongoing. Apparently thousands and thousands of people have been killed in Libya. And prior to that, of course, we had the earthquake in Morocco. And prior to that, we had fire in Maui. And as Rosh Hashanah is not just the time when the Jewish people are judged, but it's actually a time when the entire world is being judged, <clears throat> all of this gives us pause and consideration for what is the Torah perspective that we are meant to have regarding everything that occurs in the world, including to countries that are far away and all the non-Jewish nations of the world. So we will today be discussing the Torah readings of Rosh Hashanah, but we will begin with a brief discussion regarding the mysterious nature of Rosh Hashanah in that the written Torah's description of Rosh Hashanah is extremely terse and vague. I'm gonna give it to you not verbatim, but this is the essence of the few sentences that discuss Rosh Hashanah directly in the Torah. Number one, which comes from Parshas Amor, is that the first day of the seventh month 
is a Mikra Kodesh, which means it's a special holiday in which we do significant things like new uh, or, or clean clothing and uh, special prayers, plus the concept of no labor, like all the Yom Tovim, Isser Malacha, the prohibition to do work. But that is really not unique to Rosh Hashanah. So the unique description that the Torah does provide in Parshas Emor is the phrase Zichron Teruah, which literally translates as a remembrance of a blast. The word Teruah, as we're going to discuss in a moment, means a blast or a calling out. And we'll get to that, that uh, more descriptively shortly. <clears throat> in Parshas Pinchas, when the Torah describes the offerings of Rosh Hashanah, Parshas Pinchas, we do read in Rosh Hashanah as opposed to Parshas Emor that we do not read. Instead of Zichron Teruah, the Torah tells us Yom Teruah, a day of Teruah or a day of blasting, blasts of, of a sound or calling out. So the bottom line point is that it's extremely nebulous when we look at the words of the Torah in terms of vivid description, it just doesn't exist. We have Zichron Teruah and Yom Teruah, and it's very, very challenging to know what that means. So what is Teruah, and how is Teruah the essential definition of Rosh Hashanah? Now, of course, in a year like this one, it's even more powerful and strong, the question of what is Teruah, because we don't actually blast on the first day of Rosh Hashanah this year, as it is Shabbos. And the rabbis said that because of the concern regarding that people might come to carry the shofar, therefore we do not do shofar on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Now, you should bear in mind that from the Torah, there is only one day of Rosh Hashanah. And the fact that the Jewish people in the land of Israel today keep two days of Rosh Hashanah does not make it that the second day is a Torah-mandated celebration. It's really only the first day that is Torah-mandated. The second day is what the rabbis decreed, that we should keep an extra day. So that means that from a Torah standpoint, this year, we do not blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Yet, the description of Rosh Hashanah in the Torah, the only description, is that it is teruah. It's a day of blasting. So how do we understand what Teruah is? And, it, you know, this uh, difficulty of what is Rosh Hashanah without Teruah is even heightened by the fact that we don't always blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah. So if we think about this question from another vantage point, we could ask it this way. Why does the Torah not explicitly mention in connection with Rosh Hashanah kingship, judgment, or new year? All those things that most of us think in our minds is the essence of Rosh Hashanah is not explicitly mentioned in the Chumash, and it is only sort of mentioned in other places in scripture and not as explicitly as I just said it. For example, we have a sentence in, in Tehillim that talks about calling out with a shofar in front of Hashem, our God. It's not the most clear description of Hashem's kingship or judgment or that it is a new year. So that's going to be our first overall question. How do we understand the essence of Rosh Hashanah as Teruah? Why don't we find other descriptions that we would have expected 
in the Torah regarding Rosh Hashanah, such as judgment, kingship, or new year. Now let's go to the Torah reading, and what I'll do is give a brief background of the Torah reading so that we know what we're discussing. And keep in mind, as we discuss this storyline, that one would think that in Rosh Hashanah we're going to read about it. doesn't even use the word shofar in connection with Rosh Hashanah. That's a point that we're going to get to at the end. So what are the Torah readings? They come from Parshas Vayera. Chapter 21 is the first day, and that is 34 sentences long. And chapter 22 is the second day, and that is 24 sentences long. The first day, meaning this year, Shabbos, we're going to read about the fact that Hashem remembered Sarah, made her pregnant, she gave birth to Yitzchak. Yitzchak was named Yitzchak and had a circumcision. And that Avraham was 100 years old. And Sarah said, it's a tremendous celebration that Hashem has done for me. It's a rejoicing. The word Sechok, everybody who hears about it, is going to rejoice for me. And who would have thought that, you know, Sarah is going to nurse children and that I gave birth in Avraham's old age. Yitzchak grows up. Avraham makes a party. Sarah sees that Yishmael is making fun of Yitzchak or actually denigrating him. And Sarah says, kick out Hagar. This was very bad in Avram's eyes, but Hashem said to Avram, whatever Sarah says you should do, regarding this boy, kick him out with the mother, because through Yitzchak, it will be called to you children, and Yishmael too will be a great nation. So Avram wakes up early and he kicks out Hagar and Yishmael. The water finishes from the canteen and Hagar casts Yishmael under the bushes. And she goes and sits a far distance away. She doesn't want to see the death of Yishmael. Hashem hears Yishmael's voice. An angel calls to Hagar and says, what? what's going on? Don't worry. Hashem has heard the voice of the Na'ar of Yishmael. Get up, take, pick him up. And you should uh, strengthen him because he is going to be a great nation. And Hashem opened her eyes. She sees a well of water. She goes, she fills the canteen with water. She gives Yishmael to drink. And Hashem is with Yishmael and he grows up and he dwells in the desert and he becomes an archer, right? Like a bow and arrow. He dwells in the Midbar Paran and he gets married. Finishing the first day is a treaty with Avimelech. Avimelech said, let's go make a treaty with Avraham. And Avraham agrees. Avraham rebukes Avimelech on the way that he had been mistreated. And Avimelech says, I didn't know. But the bottom line is they made a covenant of seven sheep. And that's why it's called the Er Sheva, because they made a, a swearing there. And this treaty that was made was made in Be'er Sheva. And then Avimelech and his officer go back to the land of the Philistines, of the Plishtim. Avraham plants a tree or builds an inn in Beersheba, and he calls in the name of Hashem, the God of the world, and Avraham lives in Philistine land for many, many days. That's the end of day one. So, anything about Hashem being king? Anything about judgment? Anything about the new year? No, zero. Most people like to think, well, it's about the fact that Yishmael calls and he's listened to, and Hashem judges him as he was in that moment. First of all, the Torah reading is a lot more lengthy than a few sentences. Hard to understand that we're reading all of this 
in order to talk about Yishmael being answered. Second of all, I would really think that that's more appropriate for Yom Kippur when a person is doing atonement, needs to get his final forgiveness from Hashem. Okay, then we should know that Hashem will look at us just as we are. We ask for forgiveness, we pray, we fast all day. Hashem will judge us by that and then we'll be okay. That this is a Rosh Hashanah message really needs a lot of good explanation. But most importantly, why are we reading about the treaty with Avimelech? Why are we reading about the birth of Yitzchak? What does any of this have to do with Rosh Hashanah? Let's just go to Parshas Zaymar and at least read about Rosh Hashanah. Or let's read something about judgment, about the fact that Hashem is king. Why are we reading these sentences? In addition to that, when we move to the second day, which is the story of the Akedas Yitzchak, which is the binding of Yitzchak, the Torah opens this episode of Yitzchak. I'm not going to review the story of Yitzchak. I presume everybody mostly knows that story with, of course, the end result being that Yitzchak is not killed because an angel says to Avraham, don't kill the child. Avraham was ready with the knife. The angel says, don't kill him. And instead, Avraham offers a ram instead, and Hashem proceeds to bless Avraham and his descendants, right? That's the story of of the Akedah in a nutshell. It finishes with an interesting paragraph regarding the lineage of Rivka and the family of Besuel and Nachar. But the bottom line is most of, most of the reading of the second day is about the Akedah. When the Torah opens the discussion of the Akedah, it uses a very interesting phraseology, which says, and it was after these things. So Rashi points out, after what things? What do we mean that it was after these things that the Akedah happened, that Hashem told Avraham to take Yitzchak with the rest of the story as we just explained it? So Rashi says two explanations from the rabbis. What does it mean after these things? Well, the word is devarim. Devarim also means words. So it was after these words. It was after one of two conversations. Either it was a conversation between Yitzchak and Yishmael, where Yishmael says to Yitzchak, in line with what we just learned, that Yishmael was denigrating Yitzchak, you think you're all special? I did circumcision, says Yishmael, when I was 13 years old. You, you were eight days old. So obviously I'm much greater than you. It's much harder to do circumcision at the as an adult, willingly, with probably even more pain. I was 13, you were eight days old. To which Yitzchak says, what's the what problem? If Hashem would tell me to sacrifice myself, my whole body, I would do that. You, you're telling me you're great because about one part of your body. Okay, I understand. But if Hashem would tell me to kill myself in service to him, I would do that. So after that conversation, what happens? Hashem tells Avraham to take Yitzchak and bring him up as an offering. The other conversation that the rabbis say that this phrase, after these things, is really referring or referencing, is a conversation between the Satan and Hashem. The Satan said to Hashem, you know, Avraham gave birth to Yitzchak, he made him a party, and he didn't give you any offerings, he didn't bring any presents to you, Hashem. And Hashem says to the Satan, oh, it's true that Avraham did all of this for his son. But if I would ask Avraham to offer to me his son, he would even do that. So I don't need a special offering, says Hashem to the Satan. I know that Avraham would offer me his son. After that conversation, 
Hashem said to Avraham, offer up your son, bind him, take him up as an offering. So those are two beautiful explanations of the phrase after these things, as Rashi says. My question is that whichever conversation you're talking about happened a minimum of 10 years earlier, possibly 20 years earlier, and possibly even 30 years earlier, depending on how old you how old you think Yitzchak was at the time of the Akedah. If you go with Rashi, that Yitzchak was 37 years old, one conversation seems to happen when Yitzchak is two years old, which is when Hashem made a party for him, and then the Satan would be complaining, hey, Hashem, Avraham gave you nothing. The other possibility is also when Yitzchak is about two or three years old, and Yishmael is making Yitzchak feel very low by the fact that, hey, Yishmael says, I'm much greater because you know, Hashem, you know, uh, told Avram to, to circumcise you and you were only eight days old. But with me, I was 13 years old and I still did that. So either way, if Yitzchak is now 37 years old, it's many decades later. So why is it appropriate for the Torah to say after these things? That's a weird way to discuss something that was 30 years earlier. So those are two questions on the Torah reading. Number one, and most importantly, what does all of this have to do with Rosh Hashanah in any kind of a fundamental way? And number two, why is the Torah emphasizing after these things, referencing much earlier periods in the history of Yitzchak and Yishmael or Hashem and Avraham and the Satan? So that's the second area of question. Now, one last area that I would like to get into today is that as per the Gemara, the, this is tractate Rosh Hashanah in several different places, there are fundamental connections, and it's even more than connections, there's really an intertwining between Rosh Hashanah and the Yom Kippur of Yovel, meaning the Yom Kippur of once in 50 years. So for example, we know that the Torah says by the Yom Kippur of Yovel that you need to proclaim freedom and pass a shofar during the Yom Kippur of Yovel. That means a shofar needs to be blown on the Yom Kippur of Yovel. Now, seemingly the reason that that's done is to remind everyone that the slaves, the Jewish slaves that were sold into slavery become free in the Yovel year and that any lands that were ancestral lands that were sold now need to return to the rightful heir, those people that inherited on the, uh, the land of Israel originally. Okay, so that's seemingly the purpose of blowing the shofar. Now, when I say it's intertwined, for example, the Torah, as I mentioned before, never uses the word shofar by Rosh Hashanah. It says teruah, which means a blast. Seemingly, that could be any kind of an instrument, even a metal instrument, like, uh, you know, some sort of a flute. We learn from the Yovel of Yom Kippur, right? The Yom Kippur that happens in the Yovel year, that the shofar that the Torah speaks of in Yovel is actually the same shofar that we're supposed to blow every Rosh Hashanah. That's an example of the intertwining of these laws. Also, quite fascinating is that we know that in Rosh Hashanah, we daven Shmona Esrei with three main sections, aside from the normal beginning and end of Shmona Esrei. We daven with three main themes, Malchuyos, Zichronos, and Shofros. That means sentences that reference God's kingship, sentences that reference God's recalling of humanity and their deeds. That's called Zichronos, which means remembering or mentioning. 
And then finally, shofar are sentences which reference the blowing of the shofar in many different contexts throughout scripture. Now, when we think about Rosh Hashanah, that's, that seems to make a lot of sense to us because despite what the Torah um, explicitly describes about Rosh Hashanah, we do think of it as the day of judgment and kingship and that we want Hashem to remember us favorably and we proclaim these things with the shofar. So that makes sense to us. But guess what? That exact same Shemona Esrei is what we say on the Yom Kippur of Yovel. That's what the Talmud rules. This Shemona Esrei that we say in Rosh Hashanah, we don't say every Yom Kippur. As we know, we say a different prayer service on Yom Kippur, all about forgiveness and confession, right? And remembering that it's the Day of Atonement. But on the Yom Kippur of Yovel, the Talmud says we say the exact same Shemona Esrei with by the way, the same blasting of the shofar, the nine blasts, which are ultimately required, three for kingship, three for remembrances, three for shofar references. Those are three blasts for each one of those themes, which we call tekiah, teruah, tekiah. The reason that we have so many blasts, um, most importantly, is because... Uh, we're not 100% sure what Teru'ah is. There are different opinions on that. So we end up with 100 blasts or a minimum of 30. But the bottom line is that these same blasts that we do every Rosh Hashanah, if it's not Shabbos, we do on the Yom Kippur of Yovel. So my point is, then this third section that we're addressing today is what's really the connection between every year's Rosh Hashanah and the once in 50 years Yovel and the Yom Kippur of Yovel. That's that's my question. Okay, so in order to begin to you know explain our hopefully uh, thesis and what we're suggesting to answer these questions, we're going to begin with the concept of zichron teruah, which is a very difficult phrase to understand because it means the remembrance of a blasting. You should know, for example, there are opinions. Hashi, for example, who says that part of what Zichron Teruah teaches us that the rabbis derive from here is that there will be a Rosh Hashanah where you will not have an actual Teruah, meaning there will not be an actual blasting. There will just be a remembrance of the blasting. And that's called when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, which is a rabbinic innovation. But like they're learning a derivation from the sentence that Rosh Hashanah doesn't mean necessarily that you're blowing shofar, but it does mean that at the very least, there's a remembrance of the shofar. So on Shabbos Rosh Hashanah, of course, we speak about shofar as well. So what I would like to suggest is that the concept of Zichron Teruah means that we recognize the existence of Hashem. I'll explain how we get this in a moment. And despite the tremendous distance that exists between us as people and Hashem, which began at creation and then continued in you know, various ways to separate because of our sins, despite that separation, the teruah blast represents that we proclaim that Hashem is our king and that we are in allegiance to serving him. So the concept of teruah, what we're going to explain, is that it means to call out to Hashem with a declaration of his kingship and that we are in service to him. How do we know that? Well, the word teruah literally means a blast, a call, or a trumpeting sound. That's what the word teruah literally means, a blast or a call or some sort of a trumpeting sound. 
It also happens to be cognate with friendship, which means relationship from the word reus, which is friendship. To love your friend. And shepherding like ro'eh, same exact you know, root of the word ro'eh, which means a shepherd. So in the context of our trumpeting or calling and blasting the teruah, the concept is that we are referring to trying to bridge the disconnection and we're declaring that our prayers, but more importantly, and this is really the key, it's not just our prayers, but that our actions, our choices that we make in our lives are all in fulfillment of serving Hashem and Hashem's purpose for us. And what we really want to do, and this is why I'm going to explain why the Torah is saying Zichron Teruah, is on Rosh Hashanah, it's a day of making sure that our entire lives are a symbol, Zichron in this context, like a symbol of calling out to Hashem that our service is in allegiance to Him because we are interested in calling out to him, which again, the word means to call out and build a connection with him. And because he is the king, just like a shofar represents blasting in front of the king, as we see in Psalms and many other places, right? The idea is to facilitate Hashem's presence becoming more revealed and accessible. So when we do this, an amazing thing happens, and this is going to be what the Torah reading of Rosh Hashanah is all about. Let's explain again. When we do practically our choices and our actions in constant service to him as a way of acknowledging his presence and wishing to connect to him, to bridge that distance gap, Hashem designates us to serve him. We become appointed. We become his officers, we become his representatives, we become his nation. And when we think about the lives of Abraham and Sarah, and specifically Sarah in a moment, they lived in a world that had no recognition of Hashem. Yes, early on, they did recognize the presence of Hashem. And at some point, Hashem spoke to Abraham. And at some point, Hashem said, many great things are going to happen with you and your offspring. And for Many years, several decades, nothing happened to give Avraham progeny. Nothing happened that let the world recognize the truth of this relationship to Hashem. We can argue that maybe the war of the four kings and the five kings was the beginning. But in terms of specific promises that Hashem had made to Avraham, it took a long time to develop. But especially when it came to children. So what happens when Avraham is 99 years old and doesn't have children, Sarah says, I'm sorry, when Avram is 86 years old, my pardon, pardon me, I'm 85, I guess. What happens when Avram is 85 years old and doesn't have children? Sarah says to Avraham, take Hagar to be your wife. Now we really need to think about this example because it's so important, and it's really what the Torah is referencing, as I'll explain in a moment in the opening sentence of the Torah reading of Rosh Hashanah. Can you imagine Avraham and Sarah are married for decades? Hashem has made very specific promises to Avraham about the future. Sarah has been nothing but the devoted wife, sojourning with him and going through all kinds of hardships and difficulties, like the kidnapping with Paro 
and everything that happens with her brother Loth. There are many, many problems that they encounter, famines, etc. Can you imagine that now that Avraham at this advanced age doesn't have children, that Sarah on her own makes a choice without being asked by Hashem, without being asked by Avraham for a different wife, Sarah takes her own maidservant and says, Avraham, take this woman so that you can have children. So many of us have questions in our lives. What does Hashem want from us now? And Bar Hashem, sometimes we know it's to wake up in the morning and wash our hands and daven. It's to celebrate certain holidays as we do, observe many commandments that we know. But there are many areas of life where we don't know exactly what Hashem wants us to do. And Sarah had to ask herself that question. What does Hashem want from me now? There were no specific instructions, a how-to book. Hey, you know, I know I made promises to you, but do this and this and this and this, and then we'll see, you know, then it'll come true. No, it was unclear what Sarah and Avraham were meant to do. But Sarah said, I know that Avraham was promised and is destined to have children. I know I've been married to him for a long time. And really, halakhically, after 10 years, it should happen that a man is supposed to have children, I will offer my own maidservant to Avraham as a wife. That's a tremendous act of service that Sarah is doing for Hashem. That's why the Hashem pakad as Sarah. Hashem appointed Sarah to be the officer, to be the Sarah, which means princess or officer, to be the mother of the Jewish people. Because when it came to Sarah's choices, she wasn't thinking about, hey, what's my role? What's my position? What's my greatness? What's my fame? Where are my children? She was thinking about, hey, where is the nation that Hashem said is going to represent him? Where is the fulfillment of the covenant that Hashem made with my husband, Avraham? And what can I do in service of that? And that's how we deserve to serve. We need to live our lives with decades of service to Hashem. Obviously, when we know what Hashem tells us to do, we need to do that. But when we don't know what Hashem tells us to do, that needs to be our main focus. What is the service that Hashem wants me to do for him? Because I want to connect to him. I want to proclaim his presence and ultimate rulership and kingship in the world. What do I need to do? What is my service? That is the ultimate message of Rosh Hashanah. We are calling out to Hashem and declaring that we are in service to him, which proclaims his kingship, and that we have our purpose only fulfilled when it is in service to him. Very interestingly, Psalm 100, uh, which is Mizmor Lasoda, Hashem says, "Call out in front of the King Hashem, Ivdu es Hashem b'simcha, serve Hashem with happiness." How many of us can say that we're calling out to Hashem and everything that we're doing, we're doing in joyful service to Hashem? And then it says, "Udeuki Hashem and know that Hashem is the King. All of this is a way of explaining that we have tremendous thanksgiving, because this is really the psalm of thanksgiving, for the privilege of serving Hashem. Why? Because when we serve Hashem, we are fulfilling our ultimate purpose. And that's why the very end of that psalm finishes with knowing that Hashem is our king and that he made us. 
which we also pray on Rosh Hashanah. Hashem created us. It's the day of creation. And that he, Hashem, is our shepherd. Again, the word ro'eh. Hashem is guiding us. That the whole thing is Hashem as our shepherd guiding us through life. Sometimes we know what it is that he wants us to do. Sometimes we don't know, but it's our job to do our best to be in service to him because that's really the purpose of life. Now, the tremendous benefit and privilege that happens when we serve Hashem is that we matter and nothing matters more than mattering, having a purpose that we matter, that what we do is important, that it counts, that it has ultimate significance. That is a tremendous privilege. And this is a tremendous cause for Thanksgiving. And that's why I'm connecting specifically that Psalm with Rosh Hashanah. But we see these themes in many other places in the Torah. So if we wanna know what is the unifying thread of the entire reading of Rosh Hashanah, first day and second day, it is this. Sarah deserved to be appointed by Hashem as the officer, the queen, and ultimately the mother of the Jewish people. Your entire life was devoted to serving because she always asked herself, what do I understand to be Hashem's mission for me, even though I don't know with certainty? All of the suffering and wandering of herself and Abraham, plus her giving Hagar to Abraham was her calling out. That was her teruah, to Hashem in declaration of Hashem's kingship and service to him. Yes, Rabbi Chiel is pointing out, she also hoped that at the very least it would be a way to build either through Hagar or in merit of helping Hagar her own children, or it would be through Hagar and her children. Now, Hagar and Yishmael failed tremendously in the exact area that Sarah succeeds. And therefore, both days' readings contrast Hagar and Ishmael to Avraham, Sarah, and Yitzchak. The ultimate conclusion on day two is Kivi Yitzchak, Yikare Lachazar, Hashem says in day one, with the blessing that happens at the, at the Akedah, that it is through Yitzchak that will ultimately be Hashem's nation, the blessed nation, that will be the Jewish people, because the Jewish people live to serve so that they can fulfill Hashem's purpose in the world. Whereas Hagar and Yishmael, specifically Yishmael in this regard, they live in their minds to represent God in this world, but not really to serve him. It's their way of gaining control and power, which leads to a whole discussion of the Arab nations and so forth that I don't want to get into today. But the entire reading now becomes apparent. We must kick out Yishmael. Yishmael cannot inherit with my son Yitzchak, that cannot be part of the legacy of what it means to represent Hashem in the world. And when it becomes clear that we are representing Hashem in the world, guess what happens? And the nations of the world want to make treaties with us. The Avraham Accords, the treaty between Yishmael and Yitzchak, and I'm sorry, Yishmael and Abimelech, comes on the heels of everything we're describing, plus the fact that Avraham builds an Eishel in Be'er Sheva, which means that he's looking to impress upon the world the existence of Hashem, as it says, Hashem, Avram called Hashem in the name of a God forever. That's he's recognizing that part of our service to Hashem is not just that we should have a relationship with Hashem. It's not just how we think of our purpose in 
you know, what Hashem wants us to do specifically to us or with us, but it's in the context of the whole world. And immediately after that, we have the treaty with Habimelech, which makes perfect sense now why we are reading this on Rosh Hashanah. And of course, Akedas Yitzchak, which speaks about the most incredible difficulty, which is that seemingly the purpose of this covenant that Hashem remembered Sarah and he gave her a child, like he said, is because back in Parashas Lech Lecha, when Hashem says to Avraham, Aval but Sarah, your wife, will have a child, and it'll be through him that there will be kings, etc. I'll bless her, etc. And now he's supposed to kill Yitzchak, the only son of Sarah. It's beyond mind-boggling. It's beyond cognitive dissonance. It's just an impossibility to imagine. But nonetheless, we have to do what we know Hashem tells us to do in service to him. So he brings up Yitzchak and he's ready to kill him and he's about to kill him until the Malach tells him to stop. And it's that act of service which ultimately lives forever as the testimony that our service to Hashem is only in service to Hashem's plan, not to what we would imagine it to be. If we don't know, we have to do our best to do whatever we think Hashem wants. And when we do know, even though it seems to contradict what it is that Hashem wants, but nonetheless, it's what Hashem says, we have to do that too. And so these two days of Rosh Hashanah ultimately are bringing, and these two readings of these two days is ultimately bringing us to the level of understanding of what our true service to Hashem is all about. And all of that is represented in Hari Ulifnei HaMelech Hashem. And it's all represented in Yom Teruah and Zichron Teruah. So just to conclude, we now can understand the Yom Kippur of Yovel. Part of the message of the Achar Hadavarim Ha'ela is that it can take decades to be ready to do the ultimate acts of service. And despite the fact that when Avraham made the party, he intended for Hashem's glory, he didn't actually bring any specific gifts to Hashem, but really he was ready, so to speak, to sacrifice Yitzchak that's in theory what he was ready for. And the next decades of his life in proclaiming Hashem's presence to the world and kicking Ishmael out of the house and trying to do his best to raise Yitzchak correctly, he then becomes fully ready to do the binding of Yitzchak, ready to sacrifice even that, despite its inexplicability. And despite the fact that Yitzchak is claiming to be ready to offer himself Instead, uh, instead of just one limb, he'll offer his whole body to Hashem as he tells Yishmael. But the Torah is telling us that it really takes decades to build that kind of dedication and that kind of service. So seven cycles of Shemitah are supposed to remind us of the truth of Hashem's kingship. Once every seven years, we let the land lie fallow. We recognize that really our financial security is dependent on Hashem's blessing. But it takes decades to make that actually who we become. In Yovel, once every 50 years, on the Yom Kippur of the Yovel year, is the ultimate declaration of the kingship of Hashem. Now, where that's perfectly represented is that the Jewish slaves go free, as the Talmud tells us, because the Jewish people are never meant to serve other people. They're meant to serve Hashem directly. That's the freedom that the Yovel, the Yom Kippur of Yovel, represents. But as far as the rest of us, the decades of 
recognizing that Hashem is king, of having the Rosh Hashanah every year, of asking atonement from Hashem for every year, we have to almost live a lifetime of this service to really become deserving of serving Hashem directly. So I suggest that the Yovel, the Yom Kippur of Yovel specifically represents a culmination of seven cycles where we go through a Rosh Hashanah and a Yom Kippur and we're ready to fully, fully be completely absorbed by the concept that we live in service to Hashem, so much so that it remains impossible for Jewish slaves to remain slaves. All Jewish people need to be free to serve Hashem independently, but directly to Hashem. And so that's why Yovel and Rosh Hashanah are completely intertwined, the Yom Kippur of Yovel, because that's why the Torah says these two concepts have to go together. It's not enough that we call out our service to Hashem and Rosh Hashanah, but we have to live a full lifetime of year in and year out, recognizing that Hashem is our king means that we have to be his direct servants. And when we do it, Yom Kippur of Yovel, and we get that atonement of that following year, then we also then we also can be ready in a more complete sense. I'm suggesting just like Avraham and Yitzchak were ready after their decades of service. So with all this in mind, uh, we'll get to questions and comments, but I just want to conclude with one simple point. When we think of Yom Teruah on Rosh Hashanah, it's not only that we have a mitzvah to blow shofar. As we know this year, we don't even blow the shofar on Shabbos. What we really have a mitzvah is to be calling out to Hashem. Torah doesn't even say shofar. We just know from Yovel that we also have to do it through a shofar, but it's also fulfilled when we're calling out to Hashem in our prayers, we're calling out to Hashem in our service, but what are we calling out? That Hashem is our king and that we live to serve him. And the privilege benefit that we get if we in fact absorb this idea and truly live to serve him, we actually deserve to serve, which means that our lives ultimately have purpose and meaning. Questions or comments? Uh, question, question from Rabbi Zimbagelman. Why did um, Pharaoh wait so long? So, so Rabbi Zimbagelman is asking that it seems that Sarah waited a long time before suggesting that Hagar marry Avraham. So truth is that your question is excellent because that's what it would seem because Avraham is told probably at age 75, and right now he's 86. But the rabbis tell us that the reason is because 10 years of living in Eretz Yisrael, maybe he's 85 actually, 10 years of living in Eretz Yisrael um, is the ultimate test of uh, a marriage. If a couple can have children after living 10 years in Eretz Yisrael, yeah, so, so it was the end of 10 years of living in Eretz Yisrael. The Torah says that explicitly after 10 years of living in Eretz Canaan, that's when the story happened. Really my question is, Maybe, I mean, this is completely the opposite of what he said, but maybe it was a lack of bitachon that, that she told Adam and Adam. Why didn't she wait? Why didn't she see, like, you know, maybe she would have bitachon? Yeah, so so to further the question, or if somebody was asking me, maybe Sarah didn't have bitachon. Maybe the opposite. Maybe she should have waited and said, okay, Hashem, you know, it's up to you. Make it happen. So, you know, I'll become pregnant, uh, you know, when you're ready. So the reason I, I think that that's not correct is because until it wasn't until much later that it was ever said that Sarah would have children. It was only originally that Avraham was promised nationhood and children. It was only much later 
after the birth of Ishmael that it was said that Sarah would have children. So I think she was really actually being careful and literal to think, wait a second, maybe this has nothing to do with me. Maybe it's only to do with Avonir. As hard and terrible and awful that that would be, she was willing to submit to that. That's that's what I think. Rebuchiel, your question. Rebuchiel, your hand is raised. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hold on. Two points on this point you just made now. It's not a matter of 10 years. The point being is that in uh, Parsha Tazayan, um, she didn't have a child. And when did she, when it's right after, it's right after the Brisbane of Asura. So who says that it's 10, who says it has anything to do with 10 years? It's an immediately following where Hashem said, you're going to, you're going to have children. And so the next Parsha is Sarai is saying, it doesn't seem it's going to come from me. It could be it's immediate. Who said it has to do with anything with 10, 10 years? It's an immediate following that Parsha. Immediately. Yeah, Here you go. Yeah, but Pasuk Gimel, Pasuk Gimel says, that, that could be well, true. But, but again, why is it telling us that? That might be true. But again, I'm just bringing out a point. When did Hashem say Avram is going to be a great nation? Only back, in the back in beginning of. But here, Ahred, Roma, Elin, Okay, so so I don't know when you're holding the Brisbane Absarim happened. Yeah, I'm just saying if the Brisbane, this is the part, this is the literally the parak before. I'm just bringing out a point. No, I understand, but I, I just, but you know, most Rishonim hold that the Brisbane Absarim happened much earlier. Yeah, okay, but I'm just bringing out the point. But even the, if it. No, I understand that you're saying it's following the Brisbane of Sarm. I get that. I just say it doesn't have to be necessarily. It sure is Mikates Esther Shonim, Meshavas Avram. So she sees that. But who says Mikates Esther Shonim, Meshavas Avram is 10 years after the Brisbane of Sarm? That's what I'm saying. Yes, if you say Brisbane of Sarm is 70 and it's 15 years later, okay. You know, okay, but, just, but, but even if you don't, either way, it's happening after 10 years of being in Eretz Israel. Yeah, that's all. But, you know, yeah. okay. Okay. Okay, yeah. but the other question was the whole more important yeah. question, which I wrote you, is that you see clearly, I mean, the Medrash aside, the Sukim do not focus at all on Yitzhak's willingness to give up his life, which is, that's very interesting in of itself. But to say that the Torah is talking about Yitzhak and look at this great willingness of Yitzhak to give up his life based on that Medrash, the Torah is not, doesn't emphasize that at all in the part yeah, so so let, let's change your question to, okay, where do we see anything about Yitzhak's willingness? Can we change it to that? No, we, you see with Yitzhak's willingness because ultimately when Avram Avinu told him, Hashem said, you know, you're the, you're the, you're the lamb. He said, okay. But I'm exactly. just saying, yeah, so I understand saying, that, but the, yeah. the Torah doesn't make a big deal out of that. It literally covers it up completely. That's all. Yeah. Okay, but I do think that there's a lot of reasons for that shot because of the word mitzachik. Okay, yeah, I, I, I think that we have to be very careful to look at the whole picture and the possible insinuations that come from other phrases. That's, that's, that's why I'm responding with that. Because as much as it looks like it is covering it up, right, there is something to cover up or meaning something that is subtext. And the subtext... I don't, I don't deny it's a subtext, but you see yeah. that the, the text is completely focused on Avram to the point that Avram, at the end of the parsha, Avram comes back, Avram, and Yitzhak is left not even yeah. being mentioned. Yeah. Right? I'm just saying yeah. the focus of the parsha is on, for some yeah. ununderstandable reason at this point, is yeah. focused on uh, Avram. Hey, wait a minute. What happened to Yitzhak? Look, he's, he's the one yeah. willing to give up his life. He's the one. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think there's another whole approach here that would help explain that, but, but I agree with you that the main focus is around that. That's all, that's all I want to point out. Yeah. All right, thank you. Any Anybody else? We're good for today. Guess we're good for today. Okay. Look forward to seeing everybody next week. God willing uh, to discuss uh, some of Parshas Hazinu as well as Yom Kippur. Everybody should have a very meaningful, uplifting Rosh Hashanah. Are we supposed to? Um...